Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I'm thrilled to welcome our 20th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Stephen Rogelberg, Chancellor's Professor at UNC Charlotte, Professor of Organizational Science, Psychology and Management, Director of Organizational Science and President-Elect of SIOP. Before we start today's conversation, I wanna remind you that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners. Thank you. I also ask that for the live listeners that you please turn off your video and remain on mute for the entirety of the conversation. You are able to engage via the chat function, however, and we'd love to hear from you. Also a reminder that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP Conversation series landing page at SIOP.org. As our live listeners will notice, today's conversation includes video and chat. As part of this new platform, you have the opportunity to ask questions during the live broadcast using the chat function on Zoom. Stephen has also graciously agreed to remain on the line for up to 15 minutes following our standard 30-minute recorded broadcast to answer some of the in-the-moment questions you all might have today as our live listeners. Now, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Stephen Rogelberg to our conversation uh, he holds the title of Chancellor's Professor at UNC Charlotte for Distinguished National, International, and Interdisciplinary Contributions. He is a Professor of Organizational Science, Psychology, and Management, as well as the Director of Organizational Science. He has over 100 publications addressing issues such as team effectiveness, leadership engagement, health and employee well-being, meetings at work, and organizational research methods. He is the editor of the Journal of Business and Psychology and Associate Editor of IOP. Dr. Rogelberg has received over $2.5 million of external grant funding, including from the National Science Foundation. Awards and honors include receiving the 2017 Humboldt Award, the 2019 recipient of the First Citizens Bank Scholar Award, being the inaugural winner of the SIOP Humanitarian Award, receiving the SIOP Distinguished Service Award, Bowling Green State University Master Teacher Award, BGSU Psychi Professor of the Year Award, Fellow of the SIOP for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, Fellow of the Association for Psychological Science, and serving as the 2000 BGSU graduation commencement speaker. As I mentioned earlier, he's currently president-elect of SIOP and the elected secretary general of the Alliance for Organizational Psychology. He has served SIOP in a host of additional roles, including executive board member, research and science officer, chair of education and training, and program chair. Dr. Rogelberg's newest book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance, was recently released and has been on over 25 best of lists, including being recognized by the Washington Post as the number one leadership book to watch for in 2019, and Business Insider as one of the top 14 business books everyone will be reading in 2019. He and his research has been profiled on television programs such as CBS This Morning and BBC World, radio shows on stations including NPR, CBC, and CBS, newspapers including the Chicago Tribune, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and London Guardian, and magazines including National Geographic, Forbes, and Scientific American Mind. He has been a visiting scholar and guest speaker at universities around the world. Dr. Rogelbrook has also run three consulting centers, engaged with many Fortune 100 companies, and served on multiple advisory boards. He founded and currently directs two large outreach initiatives, spanning eight universities, focusing on nonprofit organization effectiveness, and over a thousand nonprofits have been served. Before completing his PhD in industrial organizational psychology at the University of Connecticut, he received his undergraduate degree from Tufts University. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. 
It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really so honored to, to do this. And thank you for doing this for Saya. It's very <laughs> generous and kind of you. It is an absolute pleasure and a delight to be able to speak with you and so many other wonderful PSYOP um, leading minds uh, and, and leading minds in the world of work. I will share with you, that's all the time we have today because those lists of accomplishments took us up. So we're going to have to end it today. <laughs> what a tremendous list of accomplishments. And I'm excited to dive into those deeper. Um, if, we, if you could, perhaps you could start off by talking about how you first became interested in IO. Sure. So this is a kind of a crazy story. Um, you know, you, you, I'd like to be able to answer this question with this um, really thoughtful, systematic journey that landed me in IO. But um, as a college student, um, I wasn't all that uh, serious. And so I was kind of a flaky college student, you know, taking a host of classes. Um, and um, my parents started to get worried about me in my junior year. My dad, who had um, had a really strong kind of controlling personality, he called and said, Stephen, uh, you need to come home this weekend and you need to tell us what you're going to do when you graduate. And that was a very jarring question for a flaky kid in college. And so for the first time, I was getting an A in a particular class. And that class was industrial organizational psychology. So I responded to my father really to kind of get him off my back that I am going to get my doctorate in industrial organizational psychology. That's wow. it. And so that is how I got into the field. Um, I went to University of Connecticut. And fortunately for me, um, I loved it. It was great. I, it was, I, I really connected with the education and the whole science practice thing was so aligned with my personality. So it was a um, very pretty random choice, but I'm very grateful for that choice. That is wonderful. So I'm curious to know, so why go and do the doctorate? Did you, did you consider master's along the way or was it just straight on to the doctorate? And well, I was pretty pragmatic. I didn't want to have to pay for education. So and if I could get four or five more years of, you know, being in an environment where I didn't have to work, you know, again, this is, you're getting insights into my psyche as a um, 20 year old kid. So it just felt like a PhD just made so much pragmatic sense. <laughs> that is, uh, that is wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story. We're going to dive into some of our listener submitted questions. So this one is very timely as evidenced by the record voting numbers in the recent election society as a whole is becoming more invested in social issues and paying more attention to how they can influence the world around them. Beyond politics, listener Marissa B would like your opinion. Do you think IOs should be more pro-social and what does this look like to you? Um, so I believe IO has so much to offer society. I'm also a really big believer that large, seemingly um, intractable problems can actually be solved by collective small efforts. And so the thought of each and every one of us doing something, something small to help society, I think the incremental gains are just tremendous. So my dream for IO is that everyone looks for an opportunity in their portfolio of work to give to a nonprofit, right? To try to apply some of our skills to helping them address um, challenges that they have. For me uh, personally, 
um, a lot of my focus has been in something called the volunteer program assessment. And uh, folks might be aware of it. Um, this is something that we started maybe 15 years ago. And it's basically a service we provide nonprofits where we survey volunteers all for free. And then we learn about their engagement and retention. They get a report, they get national norms, um, they get um, idea, you know, they get one-on-one -on -one consulting um, with the consultant and how to make positive changes. And this model that we had at UNC Charlotte, we've actually spread to, I think, eight different university partners. So collectively, you know, we are approaching 1,500 nonprofits helped. Wow. And, you know, the volunteer uh, workforce and nonprofits is so critical, um, you know, to their success and their ability to kind of fulfill their mission. So, and by the way, if you have someone who is interested in being involved in this, like we have um, ways of um, actually onboarding people. Uh, so uh, our team is ever expanding. But so I guess the overall answer to your question is, um, yes, I do. I think that we don't realize just how much interest there is in what we do. And I would, you know, I'm thrilled um, if as a collective, we can take our energy and our expertise and bring it to do good in society. Well, thank you for the wonderful work that you've uh, spearheaded in that space. And I know that is part of what helped uh, win you the PSYOP Humanitarian Award um, for the first time ever. So that's- I only did it for the award. I really wanted that award. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? So I spent 15 years doing it. But yeah, I got the prize. I was, that's, what I, that's why I did it. <laughs> uh, you shifting gears here. So you literally wrote the book on meetings. And we've got quite a bit of uh, listener interest in, in this topic. When did this topic first start to interest you? And when did you realize that you could approach the idea of meetings with an academic, uh, academic um, approach here? So, um, yeah, so, you know, we can, um, we can call ourselves different things. We can call ourselves industrial organizational psychologists. We can call ourselves an organizational psychologist, work psychologist. You could almost call me a frustration psychologist. I'm really uh, passionate around studying things that are very frustrating for people at work, especially frustrating things that happen a lot. And I'm, I'm passionate about trying to understand them and then trying to figure out uh, ways to make them better. So that's kind of a personal passion. Um, intellectually, you know, I think meetings represent an incredible opportunity for a field that basically, you know, meetings have been studied as containers to really um, examine other important things like, you know, team dynamics, right? Team processes. But to me, the container itself was interesting. And so that was kind of my interest was saying, okay, if you take meetings, instead of putting it as a background variable and move it to the, uh, to the foreground, you know, what new questions start to emerge? And that's why in my early research, I was just studying the effects of having lots of meetings on individual sense of accomplishment and well-being, right? We can just count meetings. So that's an example of kind of making it a foreground topic. And, uh, you know, since I started, I mean, there's so much energy studying meetings. Um, and there's tons of, I think, really interesting theoretical opportunities. But I think what's so exciting is that the practical implications of this work are just immense. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, for one, cannot wait to see PSYOP's forthcoming rebranding campaign around turning IO psychologists into frustration psychologists. So thank you for- It's not bad, right? <laughs> it's really, it's really catchy. I like it. Um, so sticking to this topic. 
So this book has received an outpouring of media attention, which I alluded to as part of the introduction. Um, what do you believe it is about this book that has caused it to resonate so much with public interest? So first of all, um, I did not think any of this was going to happen. Um, you know, the book released, I think, January 2nd, and then January 3rd, the Washington Post, you know, gave it the number one leadership book for the year. And then a week later, CBS This Morning called to, to book me, and then like a week later, Business Insider. And all of this was completely unexpected. And um, I mean, when you think about this book, I mean, it's a book about meetings. So, you know, who really, I didn't think people would buy a book about meetings. And then the book is unabashedly about science, which is often not helpful, you know, to getting attention. Um, so it's been a crazy ride. And, um, you know, at first I, um, I really actually didn't like it at all. Um, it was very nerve wracking and it felt, um, you know, like trying to make everything into these little tiny nutshells of information. But then I started to really enjoy it because it was just an opportunity to talk about my science, especially because I'm not posturing for another book. Um, this was the book I wanted to write. So being at peace with the fact that this is the book I wanted to write allows me to experience this in a real positive way. So more to your question, why did it resonate? Um, you know, I think that, A, I think um, the topic is really compelling to people because of the fact there's so much frustration about meetings. But B, I think that we don't realize that our science can be extremely interesting to people, right? How we write up our science is so important. Uh, there is drama in our science. There is excitement in our science. And so I think that, um, I think that we, in this book, we were able to, you know, kind of take an important problem, bring science to bear, and people were hungry for solutions especially if those solutions were evidence-based. We had several listeners submit questions regarding new challenges we face as IOs due to COVID, including listeners Jen, Brian, and Jahir, um, that have asked about the Zoom meeting fatigue phenomenon. Do you have any suggestions on how we might combat this, given the drastic increase in the amount of time spent in virtual meetings? So first of all, I've been studying meeting fatigue for like 20 years. Like that was the whole basis of my early work. So this notion of Zoom fatigue, the only thing that's new about it is we put the word Zoom in front of it. But, you know, meeting fatigue has just been going on. Um, you know, people are frustrated by a day full of meetings that tends to interrupt their workflow. Being on Zoom definitely adds a little bit additional um, layers of, um, you know, candidates for fatigue. But those are like little pebbles. Like the big boulders here really come down to meeting quality. You know, if people are in a meeting that's run really well and they feel like their time is being honored and the meeting is short and there's not that many people there, magically people don't get Zoom fatigue, mm. right? So if the, if the meeting is just, um, uh, you know, so if the meeting, yeah, so Zoom fatigue is, I think, you know, most, um, most predicted by 
you know, the leader running an effective meeting. Um, so the best ways to address Zoom fatigue is an organization or a leader being more judicious in their calling of meetings, keeping them as lean as possible, fully enacting their role of a facilitator, creating a highly inclusive environment, making sure the agenda items are highly relevant to the people that are there. So no one's left wondering, why am I at this meeting? And not hesitating to make the meetings, you know, shorter than they typically would, because I do believe that the research supports the idea that um, our attention spans in virtual kind of settings tend to be lower. So let's make our meetings shorter and allow people to kind of get back on, um, you know, with their days. Wonderful. Thank you. Listener Lewis V asks, do you have any tips on how to convince business leaders to invest time and attention to improving the meeting practices of their organization? Sure. Or just shared. Yeah. You know, it's actually not hard. Um, you know, meetings are really one of these activities that we can actually assign a cost to, right? I mean, we can take a look at how much time someone is spending, you know, and um, in meetings and look at their uh, fully loaded salaries and say, you know, this meeting has a price. And then collectively, all these meetings have a price. So you will find that organizations are spending millions and millions of dollars on meetings. And yet they're doing very little to examine the return on that meeting investment. Um, you know, you could, you could argue that in any you know, organization's kind of budget sheet, you know, meetings is the largest unexamined and, you know, non-scrutinized expense. So I like the idea of, you know, convincing the organizations that you're making this huge investment and you should monitor it, right? You should see how it's working for you. And the beauty of this activity is that because there's so many meetings, if you can make 20% of your meetings 20% better, well, the incremental effects are just massive. And there's so many opportunities for IOs, I think, to be part of a solution path forward. You know, whether it's designing onboarding programs, you know, where, you know, leaders um, receive some, you know, good skill development, leadership development programs, making sure their engagement surveys have content on meetings. So I've presented to so many different um, HR audiences, and I always ask this question. I say, how many folks in this room have on their engagement survey content around meetings? How many hands do you think go up? None. Yeah, basically none, right? So this is an incredible blind spot, right? So we have all this time that people are investing, and yet we're not at all identifying whether it's a good use of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine those compounds... Uh, those effects compound when you get into the leadership ranks and thinking about yes. the opportunity cost of people yes. being back meetings and not having time to be available and responsive to their team. Yes, you're totally right. So listener Ben B cheekily wants to know, how would you rate your own meeting effectiveness? Do you ever find it challenging to stick to any of the meeting best practices you wrote about in your book? If so, which ones and why? Yeah. Cute question. <laughs> um, so one thing that we know in the, in the um, meeting literature is that if you survey people at the end of the meeting, um, one person tends to have the highest perception of the meeting experience, and that's the meeting leader. Mm -hmm. So there appears to be this blind spot that meeting leaders have, given that they have all the control and they talk the most. So therefore, my assessment of my meeting effectiveness might also be subject to this blind spot. So maybe I'm horrible at it, but I, I, I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, I think I'm pretty good about it because I really, really care about being a good steward of others' time. Um, 
the thought of people leaving my meeting saying that was a waste is so unsettling to me. So I think about the meetings. I try to plan the meetings carefully. I'm very dialed into facilitation. So I'm not trying to honor my voice. I'm trying to honor the other voices in that, in that meeting. And I think that's so important to meeting effectiveness. So I'm trying to create a safe space, lots of inclusion. And then the other thing I try to do a lot of is uh, leverage alternative approaches. Um, so I might break people into small groups during the meeting. Um, I might do um, uh, right following the meeting after a discussion, you know, send out a quick survey and let people vote on, you know, the final decision to really allow, you know, junior professors not to feel extra pressure. Um, you know, I might gather pre-meeting feedback, um, you know, pre-meeting kind of, you know, information before the topic so that people aren't filtering. So, I'm really trying, I really try hard. I'm far from, um, you know, great at it because um, it's a journey. Like any leadership skill is a journey. The one thing I'm definitely not so good about is, um, you know, having a really strong agenda before the meeting. I definitely kind of rely more on my facilitation skills. So maybe that's an opportunity for me. All right. So then I have to ask the million dollar question. If the business case is so clear about why we should run yeah. meetings differently, if the practices are clear, and if you yourself yep. have found that it's largely easy to implement, why do you think that so many yeah. meetings continue to be run poorly? What's the what's the barrier? Yes, that's a, such a great question. Um, so first of all, organizations have um, come to the conclusion that you know bad meetings are just the cost of doing business. And that's false, right? They do not have to be a cost of doing business. They can actually be a competitive advantage, um, right? If you can differentiate yourself from your competition based on your really good um, meetings. Um, bad meetings tend to perpetuate themselves, A, because of that leader blind spot. B, organizations do not have feedback systems in place for leaders or departments or anything like that. There is a dearth of training. So research suggests that only around 20 to 25% of people receive any training on meetings, which is just bonkers when you think about how many there are. So given all those things, what tends to happen? People just recycle the bad meeting practices that they themselves have experienced because they think that's normative. That is, uh, that is helpful to know. Sounds like there's a variety of factors there. So we'll shift gears. We've got another listener here. Um, that has uh, talked about how your PhD program in organizational science at UNC Charlotte uh, has been praised as a program that practices what IOs preach and has an engaging culture. So how do you apply IO principles within the programs that you run, both within the org science doctoral program at UNC Charlotte and within PSYOP? So that, I mean, that's lovely to hear. Um, you know, that's a very nice question. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge... Um, I mean, I, I am just uh, such a huge proponent of voice and inclusion. Um, I so want people in the program, students and faculty alike, to feel like they're part owners in the program. And if you can get people to truly feel like part owners, I mean, that changes everything. Um, you know, right? Because owners build, owners sustain. Um, you know, owners see a problem and they they try to fix it. And so... You know, so that's one thing is I really try to promote this sense of ownership. I try to be transparent in, in everything uh, I do because in the absence of information is just misinformation. Um, and then, you know, I really do uh, my, my passion around collecting voice is sincere. So people know that, you know, when we have a problem or an issue or if they have a suggestion, it's going to get fully listened to. I never believe that 
I know all the answers. Um, the collective power, um, especially given how smart people are in a doctoral program, um, you know, their voices just you, are so, the program is so well served when you elevate them. Um, so, um, you know, that's really, you know, my main hope is to capitalize on the incredible talent that's always around each of us. Um, we just have to be willing to tap into it. That is a wonderful lesson for any discipline <laughs> to keep in mind. That's fantastic. Thank you. So um, shifting gears again here, you're the editor in chief of the Journal of Business and Psychology, which has become one of the very top journals in IO, moving from an impact factor of 0.44 to now around 4.0. Can you talk about what JVP does differently and how you're able to move the needle so significantly on the impact factor of this journal? Um, so, um, so I don't know exactly what leads to increasing an impact factor. It's a complicated decision, but I can tell you the things that, um, that we do that I think are a little bit different that, um, I think accidentally result in increased impact factors, um, because it just brings visibility to the journal and the journal publishes really good work. So our goal is to publish really good research. And we don't have formulas. Um, we recognize that good science comes in all sizes and shapes. So for us, theory is not a litmus test. Um, you know, good incremental contributions can come in lots of different ways. So that's one thing is we're just very open-minded to an author making the case that what they have is important. A strong rationale is what's critical to us, not a theoretical rationale per se, even though that could be the path. But if you can really establish that what you're doing is really important and you have the data to support your questions, that's great. We're happy with that. We also have a very strong, I think, value system um, around constructiveness and respect for the review process. So a good example of that is we actually have a policy of sorts that papers only can go through two revisions. So therefore, we signal to authors very early you know, what we think about their paper um, and we don't waste their time. Um, we don't try to rewrite authors' papers. So we give feedback, but we're not trying to recreate the, the, the paper. Um, we keep editors' loads really, really low so that they have time to actually invest in being a steward of that paper, right? Helping the author truly navigate through the reviews. Um, another interesting thing that we do is we have no terms. So you can be on the board or an associate editor for as short or as long as you want. So this is key to how Eden and I, uh, Eden King and I run the journal, because if no one has terms, you have to treat people well, right? You have to make sure that people aren't burned out. So we just do a lot to, I think, really um, express our appreciation um, to our team. And I think that's reflected in the experience authors have. And finally, I'd say what differentiates us that's built some excitement is we're constantly willing to try new things. Like we've done special features on null results. Um, we have a new initiative now that anytime someone has an article accepted, we actually, they create um, an open science repository where they can stick data or measures or anything they want. So now people can find the article and then they can also find a folder with more information. Um, you know, we have a, a path to submission where you actually don't have to submit a full paper. You can just submit your intro and your methods and it gets evaluated that way. So this is a way of trying to get more null results into the research, right? You know, research is messy. So as an author, if you can make a, a compelling case about the research, it doesn't, it shouldn't matter what you find. 
So we definitely try new and different things um, to try to better the science. So I think all those things together just kind of uh, creates a journal that um, is publishing good work and is attracting attention and uh, people are wanting to be part of and they're not getting burned out. And I think that just indir indirectly leads to your papers being cited more. It almost sounds like you've taken application of many IO principles around effectiveness and efficiency and applied them to the, the journal process. You know, it's really funny you say that because I think that's true. I think that the models that we have with journals are not aligned with IO psychology. I mean, so many journals, the goal is you assign just tons of papers to um, editors and reviewers and they get burned out but they also don't have the time to, I think, fully invest in the process. So you actually can't find a journal, I think, in, in our discipline that has more associate editors than us. So we get nearly a thousand submissions, um, but we are just, I mean, we expand our associate editors pool by three each year and we have almost no turnover. So our pool of associate editors is just massive, but it serves the authors and the journal extremely well. Well, I, for one, would love to see an article in JDP on the application of IO principles that have helped to elevate JDP. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe we'll see that forthcoming in the future. Um, so I know we have just a minute uh, a minute left here, but let's talk about your time in PSYOP leadership and now in your role as president-elect. What are some initiatives or lines of effort that you would like to see PSYOP continue, start, or stop in the coming years? And how can our listeners get involved in supporting PSYOP? So I took a break from PSYOP after my research and science officer position, and I'm really glad I did because I came back and I was just blown away by all that I saw. I mean, SIAP is doing so many amazing things, um, supporting practitioners and the science and advocacy and veterans. Um, so it's just, it's just so um, energizing to see all this activity. The thing, one thing that I would love to do um, is um, I would love for SIAP to get it more involved in helping increase the pipeline of diversity into our discipline. I think we have some real opportunities. We have this fantastic profession, but we're not highly diverse in PSYOP. So I would love to see PSYOP support the creation like of a cohort program where you recruit um, in, you know, maybe historically, uh, you know, HBCUs, what, what have you, and you build cohorts um, of folks, you know, getting them um, more information about IO, but also then supporting them in their journey to apply to schools. Um, so I, that's something that I feel like we're uniquely positioned to do because um, we have a good product to sell. So I'm kind of charged up about that. Um, in terms of getting involved, um, I mean, SIAP is is run by, I mean, there's just so many volunteers. It's a volunteer, heavy volunteer-based organization. So all the committee chairs are listed on the website. People can reach out. We have a page on the website where you can indicate what committees that you'd like to be involved in. So if you really want to, the best way to, I think, truly love SIOP is just to get involved, right? Because that kind of goes to that comment I made earlier about ownership, right? The more ownership you feel, you know, the, the more kind of tight connection you have. So I, I hope, I hope your listeners um, will take the, the plunge if they haven't already done so. Well, Stephen, thank you. That is all of our time for today for the recorded portion of our broadcast. So to our podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in. And Stephen, of course, on behalf of PSYOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you for an engaging and an enlightening conversation and for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure. Please join us for our next conversation on January 27th with Dr. Eden King, 
the Lynette S. Autry Professor of Industrial Organizational Psychology at Rice University and outgoing president of SIOP. Our future lineup also includes Dr. Richard Landers and Dr. Sharon Parker and a number of other wonderful and influential uh, academic applied and research, uh, research minds and IO. Keep your eye out for future announcements regarding dates for these excellent speakers. Thank you all for joining today's discussion. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Until next time, take care.